0: Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know, conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is Emily Anthes. Emily is a science journalist and writer based in Brooklyn. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Nature, Scientific American, and many other outlets. She has also appeared on far more prominent shows than this one, including NPR's Fresh Air, PBS NewsHour. And BBC Radio. Her 2013 book, Frankenstein's Cat, explores the cutting edge of bioengineered animals. We get into some pretty wild territory this episode. We cover a few chapters from her new book, The Great Indoors, including What Our Dust Says About Ourselves, The Ideal Workplace, Amphibious Houses, and Humane Prisons, if there is such a thing. We then spend the bulk of our conversation on her book, Frankenstein's Cat. We cover cloning, the tension between expensive innovations in animal treatment, and more cost-effective ways of helping animals. Whether biodiversity matters. Bringing back the woolly mammoths, sadomasochistic cows, animal cyborgs, the ethics of animal testing, CRISPR babies, and human-animal hybrids. This was a fun episode. It's a nice break from politics for a change, and I hope you enjoy it. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Of course, thanks for having me.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about the book you've been working on?
1: My current book that I've been working on is, uh, the working title is The Great Indoors, and it looks at the ways that architecture and design influence human health and well-being. Um, So I'm defining that really broadly, so looking at everything from the indoor microbiome and how scientists are now charting the microbes that live in our houses, uh, to things like how hospital design influences patient outcomes, how we can design offices that are good for cognitive functioning and productivity, um, how we can create more humane jails and prisons, and then looking a bit towards the future at how technology is coming into our buildings, you know, things like smart home technology and where that might be heading, Mm. as well as on the longer time horizons, uh, building settlements on the moon and Mars and what might those look like? So it's really broad based, but the idea is to sort of examine the ways that the spaces we spend so much time in affect our lives in ways that we don't always appreciate.
0: Interesting. So you've written a few articles that are chapters, I think from this book. Mm -hmm. Um, one of them was about how our dust is like just really reflective of like who we are, you know, who we're living with, what we're living with. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting and then was reading one on like the ideal office environment can you speak to those uh, ideas a little bit
1: well uh, to start with the microbes and the dust um, this is scientists have it's traditionally been difficult to study microbes there are billions of them in the world and lots of species don't grow well in the lab hmm. and so traditionally scientists have been limited to what they can actually culture which is a small minority of species of bacteria and fungi, things like that. Um, But genomics really changed all of that. And so there's a whole new way of sampling microbes where you can take like a drop of water or a speck of house dust and you can sequence all the DNA it contains and then match that up against a reference database and get this long list of creatures and organisms that maybe we didn't even know existed. And so it turns out one really good vehicle for doing that is house dust especially scientists have studied the dust that accumulates around the uh, trim of our doorways and they do that deliberately because i mean i don't know if you've ever cleaned the top of your doorway but i don't think i ever have in my life my room does life. not
0: get cleaned very much and like.
1: so <laughs> the idea is that the dust that accumulates there collects all sorts of detritus from you know if you sneeze um, those particles if you have a pet like little pieces of pet dander, pollen that might be from your neighborhood, uh, particles of food that you've eaten. And so if you take this dust and you sequence all the DNA it contains, it sort of gives you what one of the researchers I talked to called a micro-history of your life. I mean, mm. it has limitations, but you can see like there might be tomato DNA in it. And you know, here in New York, most of us aren't growing tomatoes, so you could tell that um, maybe you're eating tomatoes. Mm. and one of the scientists I talked to actually said he has an idea for a study. He wants to do the same technique in restaurants and try and reconstruct the menu from the DNA that they find. And so it can be really informative to see what's in your dust. You can learn a lot about people. The different bacteria vary depending on how many men and women live in a space, whether you have a dog, a cat, or no pet. Um, So, you know, you probably aren't learning like what Someone's favorite color is, but there's a lot about the occupants of a house and their behaviors that you can't learn.
0: Hmm. I'm imagining a Black Mirror episode where somebody uh, discovers their partner is cheating on them through, like, you know, uh, environmental report. Um, what is it, forensic technology?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could imagine that's not that far fetched because our individual microbiomes, the microbes that live in our body, we sort of each have our own unique microbial fingerprint. And scientists have actually tracked the paths of different people around their homes using this technique oh, wow. like they can find discover like which person spends more time in the kitchen but i could certainly imagine an application in a dystopian world where you can detect if some new microbial signature has appeared in the bedroom hmm. like does that mean that your partner's having an affair
0: yeah oh wow that's that's interesting um yeah so do you see any you've written about like the ethics of a lot of the technologies and like Frankenstein's cat which we'll get to um but yeah do you see any like downside of knowing you know this information
1: well right now at least this might be temporary one of the i don't know if you'd call it a downside but the limitation is that there's much more data and information than we know how to make sense of Mm -hmm. so you know it's one thing to collect and sequence all these genes and it's still difficult to figure out what it all means and even you know, scientists are finding DNA sequences that they've never seen before. And is that a new species and is growing in the house? So there's sort of that those kinds of scientific limitations. Um, But certainly, I mean, anything that could be used as a new method of surveillance, I think has, you know, I don't know how practical it is, but has all the same downsides that other types of surveillance would have and all the same privacy risks. You know, I don't, haven't given much thought to, like the government tracking us via our microbiomes, but seems indirect. It's, it's not inconceivable, at yeah. least in theory. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know that it, given like how fast things like facial recognition are improving, like it doesn't seem like the most effective way to do that, but I, I think scientifically it would be possible. Yeah.
0: Um and the workplace of tomorrow, I guess the uh oh, yeah. scientific study of the workplace.
1: So I mean, if the question is what is the ideal workplace, the answer is uh, it's complicated and there probably isn't one. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that scientists are learning more and more is that how nuanced these things are. So basically everything in an office can affect your productivity, your cognitive performance. even there are really interesting studies showing that cog- uh, I'm sorry, uh, carbon dioxide mm-hmm. is a potent air pollutant indoors and it can affect our mental performance so oh. if you have I think it's as few as three or four, pe- four people in a conference room for an hour they can produce enough co2 to actually impair your cognitive functioning which really? is sort of an amazing amazing finding that yeah. I'm not sure what what to make of that
0: shorter meetings I guess
1: <laughs> yeah but so the more scientists like really dive into this science the more they're learning how complicated these things are so they're different types of mental tasks we all have to perform. You know, one day we might be brainstorming, another day you might be really working on something detail-oriented, like mm-hmm. editing a paper, writing code. And the envir- The ideal environments for those types of tasks are likely to be different. Um, I mean, we do know that people work best in environments that are comfortable to them, sort of a basic thermal range that have lots of daylight, that they can customize according to their preferences. But in terms of, you know, is it better to have a cool light bulb or a warm light bulb? It it does tend to depend on what type of task you're doing. Hmm. So one of the overarching lessons is that it's probably good to create an office that has different types of areas and gives people some choice where, you know, they can go sit in a lounge if they want to have sort of a creative brainstorming session, but then there's a focused, quiet place to do more intense work.
0: That's interesting. Uh, my high school had no windows in any of the classrooms. It was designed by somebody who also designed prisons. And, you know, on the one hand, you could say, like, oh, like, I get distracted staring out the window, and, like, you know, especially if it's snowing or something. On the other hand, it's just, like, dreary and depressing <laughs> and hard to really be motivated in that setting.
1: One of the clearest, most consistent findings from this strain of research in every type of setting for every type of person is how important natural light is. Mm. That's you know, a lot of this is nuanced and complicated and you can say it depends, but there's almost nothing that regular access to natural light doesn't improve from yeah. mood to cognitive performance, um, everything. So that would be a bad idea yeah. I think to design a school without any windows.
0: My bedroom also has no window because, you know, New York. Yeah. (laughs) That seems not ideal.
1: Not ideal, but there are, I mean, so one of the modern ways that designers are dealing with this is they are um, developing what they're calling circadian lighting systems. Mm -hmm. So these are light bulbs that sort of better mimic the way that the sun changes in both brightness and color throughout the day. And so it's not as good as the real thing, but if you're not getting enough light during the day or for people who are night shift workers, things like that, that can help sort of keep people's circadian rhythms on track. So it's not hopeless, but daylight would be better.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I've been camping and just been out of like uh, artificial light for a while, I just feel like my sleep is so much better and you wake up much earlier, but you also fall asleep earlier. And you know, it's, I I'm living in an extremely artificial environment in my, you know, day-to-day life. And
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, humans evolved. Our, our brains and our circadian rhythms evolved in the outdoors with this fairly predictable day-night cycle. And our modern lives, you know, even electric lighting, we're not really designed for that. And the time that's been around hasn't been enough time for us to evolve. So I guess we might in the future.
0: Just maybe. evolve to be uh, able well, to deal with evolve,
1: it. evolve to have maybe circadian rhythms that are more in tune with our modern you know, light-drenched nights. But, I mean, we're really talking long scales there, not, like, in a decade.
0: Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, There was also another article on floating houses to adapt to climate change. and My conversation earlier today was about climate change and sea level rising and how uh, many cities on the coast right now will be, like, underwater, given current projections. So can you just speak to that technology?
1: Sure. So this is... I'm I'm looking... When I look towards the future and the building techniques of the future, one of the sort of new watchwords for designers is resilience and to create structures and infrastructure that can withstand whatever hazards are coming down the pike, whether that's you know flooding or droughts, fires, um, keep us safe and also minimize the destruction that these sorts of disasters can do. The idea being that, you know, we can't stop flooding even if we you know manage to immediately wean ourselves off of fossil fuels the sea levels will still rise we'll still have storms but so these one idea for how to create homes and buildings that can withstand these floods and these storms is to create what are called amphibious houses so there are some already some floating villages, some people that live on like houseboats or yeah. out on the open water. I've seen this
0: in Vietnam. Exactly, uh, in um, Bay.
1: They're, and they're pretty common in Southeast Asia and you know some other places, a lake in Peru. And then obviously most of us live in buildings that are firmly anchored to the ground and amphibious houses are sort of halfway in between. So most of the time, they sort of sit on their foundation on the dry earth. But the idea is that if there's a flood, as the flood levels rise, they sort of rise off their foundations and float on the surface of the water. And then when the floodwaters recede, they float back down and settle back on their foundation. Um, And there are different ways of doing this, but most of them involve some sort of buoyant foundation, whether that's you know you can have recycled water bottles that are filled with air or styrofoam and then you have to have some way of attaching the house to sort of its roots so it doesn't float away down the street so you can like tie it to poles that are put around the house perimeter and when it rises it will just sort of float on top of the water and the whatever they're tied to the guidance posts will keep it in place and then it will slowly settle back down when the flood
0: Yeah. And it's been getting some pushback, though. It's regulatory agencies, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, one reason it hasn't uh, taken off as quickly is um, because of government regulations. Um, It's not in most building codes. It's a fairly new idea and hasn't really been rigorously tested. Um, But then also FEMA, which issues discounted uh, flood insurance for people who live in flood zones, um, doesn't currently sort of accept amphibious housing as insurable. Yeah, um, So it would
0: actually make you, your house more expensive to, to do this, like from an insurance standpoint, right?
1: Yeah, well, and it can go farther than that. I mean, I think I'd have to check the latest on this, but when I talked to a researcher a few years ago, she had said that FEMA had even sort of suggested that any communities that issue permits for these kinds of structures might be put in jeopardy the entire community's eligibility for flood insurance. Wow. Um, so it's sort of stalled here in the U.S. for the time being, but one of the researchers leading this effort has now gone to Canada, and um, Canada's asked her to draw up a set of potential regulations and that they could maybe incorporate in their national building code. So there are people trying to change things, but it, it's still pretty new, and so it, it's sort of amphibious buildings have popped up here and there, but it's not something that's all over the place yet.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, Canada seems to have a government that's a little bit more responsive <laughs> to their needs.
1: Yeah, it depends on the, you know, five, ten years ago that wasn't the case, so I think it depends on the administration, but yeah, yeah it's there's red tape for sure.
0: Yeah, and so uh, how, how close is this book? Uh,
1: it is very close to being finished, I hope. Um, And right now it looks like it'll be due out um, in May 2020. There's not an exact date yet, but about a year. Um, Though I will keep everyone updated. Yeah.
0: And what's the, uh, you know, just for my curiosity, like how you finish a draft, it goes to your editor. At one point, does it like be done and then go to publishing? Like, what's the timeline?
1: Yeah, so publishing tends to be a fairly slow process, at least compared to journalism, which is sort of the world I come from. Mm -hmm. So I've finished a first draft. uh, That was in the end of January. I finished my first draft. I'm now at mid-April about to finish my second draft, and I'm still working with my main editor. And after probably another round of revisions, another month or so, it will sort of go to her boss, and there will be copy editing. It will get laid out it'll get designed there'll be a cover design and then they'll print galleys which will get sent out to potential reviewers and so it's all sort of a there are a lot of steps and it's a long process yeah Um,
0: and you finish it and then you're just like waiting forever for it to come out right
1: (laughs) yeah there is a bit of a lag but um that can be useful too it sort of gives me a chance to regroup and um start to think about how i want to publicize it and what i want to do to sort of get it out into the world, so it's it's tricky for science books, which is what I've been writing because science moves so fast. Mm-hmm. It's you know you want things to be up to date. Um, that's probably the biggest challenge is trying to write things in a way that they're not instantly obsolete. Yeah, um, but that's sort of part of the job, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. And what uh, what drew you to journalism and science writing in particular?
1: Well, I sort of came at it from the science angle first. I thought I was going to go to med school and be a doctor. And at some point in college, I guess halfway through. So I I thought I was going to be a doctor and go to medical school and maybe do research. I was really interested in neuroscience. But uh, gradually in college, especially when I took did a lot of lab work, I realized that I really liked learning about science, but that I didn't like doing it Mm -hmm. um, necessarily. I was just sort of intellectually interested in it. Um, And journalism had always been an additional interest of mine. Both of my parents are journalists. So I definitely grew up sort of steeped in it. And, you know, I'd written for my high school paper and my college paper. And it didn't occur to me until kind of embarrassingly late that there was a way to combine those two interests. I did an internship at the Boston Globe when I was in college. And I met a girl there who had just graduated from a graduate program in science writing. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing that you could do. And as soon as I heard that, I knew that was sort of the perfect fit. Um, And so that's what I then went to um, MIT. I did a a grad program in science writing. And that's what I've been doing ever since.
0: That's cool. Do you you ever get pushback from, uh, I don't know, There are some science writers who are like scientists first, you know, doctors, PhDs, whatever, and then turn to writing. Um, Do you ever feel like, I certainly feel when I'm writing on anything scientific or any research, very self-conscious about getting it right and not getting an angry comment or email from somebody who actually knows what they're talking about.
1: I mean, I do worry a lot about getting it right, for sure. And it's probably the most terrifying time is between when the text is finalized or, you know, the magazine goes off to press Mm -hmm. and it comes out and you worry that you've left some mistake in or someone's going to find an error. But I don't know that that's super tied up in not having a science degree. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, some of my favorite science journalists don't have science degrees. Um, There's certainly times I wish I had one when I'm writing about something really tricky or, you know, with a lot of technical biochemistry behind it and I'm trying to make sense of this paper. But I think there are advantages to it, too. I mean, I sort of understand that not all of my readers are going to have a lot of scientific background, because I don't, and so I need to explain it in a way that I can understand it myself and maybe makes me less afraid to ask questions that I think other people might Think are kind of basic. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that not having a science degree is better than having one either, but I think you can do the job well with or without.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've certainly enjoyed the explanations in, in your writing, and oh, it's thanks. it's very clear. Um, and I, I heard something once. It was like I said I was very self conscious, like about getting everything right and and really doing my homework. And somebody said like, "Good, like keep keep feeling self conscious because that's how you'll be a better writer, and you're going to put in more work than somebody who's like very established and there are plenty of cases of people who are brilliant in one field and then kinda of write in a different field and don't do their diligence and say something that's like not true or uh not very well representing uh some, some other person's viewpoint. And you know, I think if they were coming at it totally new, they would probably do more homework.
1: Yeah, I mean I think like commitment and priority commitment to and prioritizing accuracy is incredibly important, no matter what your background. And there are great journalists with all sorts of backgrounds and terrible journalists with all sorts of backgrounds. So it's sort of what you make of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So turning to uh, Frankenstein's cat. So this was your, like, you had a smaller book, but this is your first kind of like big book. right?
1: Yeah. My first real book, I call it. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Um, And so what was the kind of thesis? What inspired you to write this one?
1: Yeah. Frankenstein's cat was really close to my heart. It's about animal biotechnology and sort of what biotechnology means for the future of animals and it sort of bubbled up naturally I'm a deep animal lover you know before I wanted to be a doctor when I was really a little kid I wanted to be a veterinarian and so I've always been an animal lover and I'm attracted to stories about animals and as I pursued science journalism I found that some of my favorite stories were about animals in some way Um, and Gradually, over the course of years, as I was making my way as a freelance writer, I just started paying attention to more and more studies that were coming out that were doing all sorts of crazy things to animals, you know, cloning them or making them glow green or turning them into remote control cyborgs. And I sort of came to notice my internal sort of dueling reactions, where on the one hand, I'm... A science geek, and I thought the the fact that we could do all this stuff was really cool and look at all the things that we were learning, but then there was a part of me, the animal lover part of me, that wondered if I should be unsettled like was was it bad that I thought this was cool, and you know how do, could I make sense of sort of some of this conflict mm-hmm. um, and that was sort of the genesis of the book, also, I think feeling frustrated with the fact that sometimes the discussion of animals and science, it sort of feels like it's portrayed as animals versus science, like you're either on one side or the other. And I thought there were lots of cases where that didn't necessarily have to be true, that some of these innovations that I was seeing were good for science and were good for animals. So I sort of wanted to try to bridge that gap. That's not to say that's always the case, of course, but I think it can be a lot more than we acknowledge.
0: Yeah, the sea turtle example comes to mind do you remember that story you told in the book about sea turtles like only prefer certain temperatures of water um and this was only learned through like tagging them and seeing where they live
1: oh the elephant seals
0: or was it elephant seals yeah okay but
1: yeah i mean so well i think this is what you're talking the
0: where fishermen were not allowed to like fish in certain waters at like a temperature range that sea turtles sound Oh favorable. yeah, sorry.
1: Um, You're right. I I was thinking of the elephant seals being used to map the ocean. Well that that's not um,
0: really interesting. Right.
1: Sorry about that. But yeah, I mean there are the more we learn about these animals, the better we can protect them and meet their needs and I mean there is some tension there because there are always trade-offs, right? Like some people have problems with animal tagging and there are ways to do it that can be fairly intrusive to or stressful for the animal. Um, certainly if you make the tag too big or too heavy, it can you know, disrupt the flight of birds and can sort of compromise their ability to survive. So you don't want to go that far. Um, but on the other hand, you need some of this knowledge in order to help protect these species. And so there's sort of this balancing act between like, The individual and the species and like maybe it's worth stressing out 50 sea turtles lightly while we capture them and tag them to try and get the data we need to protect the species so it's it's a hard balancing act but i think it can be done
0: yeah yeah and and it was like because we learned that sea turtles only like this very specific temperature range we could tell fisher fishermen to not go in that range and fish and then there are basically no sea turtles getting caught.
1: Right, and then they'd avoid, you know, most of the sea turtles, and it's sort of a nice way to strike a balance between human and animal needs. Like mm-hmm. you don't have to necessarily compromise the livelihoods of the fishermen, but you don't have to put the turtles in danger either.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and it only really worked because the government would like fine you a very large amount of money if you caught the sea turtles. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, you have to. Um, a lot of these things need more than just scientific knowledge. Need you need sort of right? and regulatory something, regulations with teeth that mm-hmm. are actually enforced, mm-hmm. which they're not always.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the early chapters is on cloning. Mm-hmm. And I remember you brought up the example of like cloning pets and like kind of rich people <laughs> trying to clone their beloved Fido. And when I was growing up, I, the thought of my dog dying was like the most tragic thing in the world. And I knew that cloning was a thing, um, and I was thinking like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could just clone her? But then I remember thinking like, she wouldn't be the same. Also, you learn later, it's extremely expensive, and (laughs) (laughs) and it's definitely not worth doing. Um, You know, when there are so many people in serious need and other animals in serious need that would be helped by $100,000 it takes to clone them. But one of the things that was really interesting is like how animals with the exact same genes um, can still be very, very different. Can you explain like how how that came to be?
1: Sure. So clones are the easiest way to describe a clone is that it's an identical twin that's born at a different time mm-hmm. than its twin. So you know, usually years later. Um, so if you think about any identical twins you've ever met, I mean, first of all, they're not absolutely identical. That you know, they might have a different mole, or you know, one might be. A centimeter taller than the other. And a lot of these differences are what are known as epigenetic differences. So if you have the genome, which is a string of letters or bases, that's sort of the underlying DNA, but all along the genome are these sort of molecular tags that you can think of as sort of light switches or dimmer switches, and they regulate the activity of genes. So if you flip it one tag, then the gene might turn on or off, or it might dial up that gene's activity. And the thing about these molecular tags is that they are affected by the environment. Um, And so it's not the underlying code, but if twins are exposed to, you know, different chemicals or foods or experiences, it can flip some of these switches in different ways and affect the way that their genes are expressed, um, and then lead to differences in how they look or act. So that's just in regular identical twins. But then clones you'd expect to be even slightly more different than identical twins. Um, And partly that's because the way clones have traditionally been made, they're not actually quite genetically identical to the original animal. So they tend to have um, the mitochondrial DNA of an egg donor. They Mm -hmm. use a donor egg for that, so there is a slight genetic difference, but also they are sort of carried to term, they gestate in the womb of a surrogate mother. So all during gestation, they're exposed to different chemicals, different environments at a different time than the original animal. So the combination of those factors can lead to fairly substantial differences. They're also then, you know, if they're a species that has maternal care, they're raised by a different mother than the original was. So. Clones are quite similar, but, you know, they're not identical. And they certainly don't necessarily have the same personalities and they don't have the same life experiences.
0: And and so the cloning technology seems to be driven mostly by, you know, wealthy people trying to save their pet. Um, but what kind of, like, applications are there to...
1: Well, so actually it's not... Um, It's not mostly driven by wealthy people. It's actually been mostly driven by agriculture. Oh, interesting. Um, So wealthy people have sort of, that's a side little market that, you know, some wealthy people have glommed onto now that it's possible. But it's more been driven by, you know, a prize bull is worth a lot of money and mainly through breeding. And so part of the idea is if you can clone really great bulls that have, you know, whatever quality it is that you want, whether that's their offspring produce a lot of milk or their muscle is marbled in the right Mm way. If you can create more bulls with those characteristics, you can make a lot of money breeding them and selling their sperm. So, I mean, the real money in cloning mostly has come from agriculture. But, you know, once the technology exists, it exists. And so... um, there has been some pet cloning it's still really a niche market yeah um and cloning is still a fairly immature technology for as long as it's been around i mean one thing i talk about in the book is that it's fairly inefficient so you need to harvest a lot of eggs and make a lot of embryos and transfer a lot of embryos to surrogate mothers to get you know just a handful of viable healthy offspring, Mm -hmm. um, which is an animal welfare concern, but it's also, you know, it's not the most efficient way to get a new animal. And I think I have a source who says, especially when you're talking about something like dogs, which are so inbred and have so many breeds with distinct traits, like if you want another dog that's just like your golden retriever, like just get another golden retriever, you know, that's probably going to get you about as close as a clone will.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and my dog in particular, she was uh, found in the wild and rescued. Um, and her early life experience, I think shaped her personality in ways that would not be the case if, you know, uh, her same genes were coming out of like a puppy mill or something. Yeah. She was like very, very afraid of people, but also like, you know, very sweet and, uh, You know in need of protection and and those kind of traits like really defined her personality compared to other dogs so
1: right
0: interesting um so i do want to talk about uh, animal prostheses as well this is something when i first or can you just tell the story of like winter the dolphin and what happened to her and what we what we did
1: sure so uh winter is a dolphin um in florida she was a wild dolphin she was born in the wild And uh, she was rescued, she was caught in a trap, I think it was some fishing line or some fishing net that was um, sort of got wrapped around her tail and she was freed, but because the rope had cut off the circulation to her tail, um, it had to be amputated, it couldn't be saved. And um, so she, she survived and was sent to an aquarium, but she did start to develop some health problems because she lacked the back part of her tail, sort of a curvature of the spine, and it was hard for her to sort of swim properly without sort of the weight and the structure that a a dolphin's tail provides. So some... um, Prosthetists who specialize usually in, in human prostheses uh, built her a new tail. I mean, it was a long process. Um, it involved sort of creating a whole new type of material. So one of the things about dolphin skin is that it's really sensitive, and you know, it scratches easily and sort of can get abrasions easily. So they needed to come up with some sort of very soft, cushiony, gel-like material that would protect the skin on what remained of her tail, and they could put the actual artificial tail over and that took a while Um, but they built her actually a number of tails and they've refined it Um, and she doesn't wear it all the time but it has helped her and they put it on and lead her through physical therapy exercises and trying to strengthen the muscles along her spine and sort of give her a longer normal life. Um, The interesting part of the story and this has happened... Repeatedly with animal prostheses is that some of the innovations they came up with to help winter have actually made their way into human prosthetics. Um, particularly that same sort of soft, cushiony gel. Um, a lot of human amputees also their what remains of you know their leg or their arm can get really rubbed raw by constant pressure and contact with you know, the socket of the prosthetic. And so this material, Winter's Gel, is now sometimes used uh, for some patients to sort of line the socket and create a more comfortable experience.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, reading this story, I I went on a roller coaster of, like, first thinking this is a crazy amount of money to spend on, like, one animal when there are, like, 100 billion getting killed each year on, like, factory farms. Um, And also people not getting helped. But then I, you know read about how this helps so many people who have prosthetics. Um, and then I, you know, be warmed up to it a little bit because I, 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 love the idea of like pushing technology and like helping creatures that we've hurt, but there are just so many very much more cost effective ways to, to help um, animals in need. Uh, but it seems like kind of an argument from the why we go to the moon perspective, you know, it's, it's kind of useless in one sense, but it really, really, Results in all these technologies that we didn't expect happening down the line.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's also, I mean, I take your point about allocation of resources for sure. Like, I'm sure you could do a lot of other things with whatever money was spent on winter. But I think in reality, the world tends not to work that way. So, like, the prosthetists who spent years working on this and, you know, Did this pro bono and spent their nights and weekends. Like, it's not like they were gonna go out and like reform factory farms (laughs) in their free time if they weren't doing this. So I sort of think that like in whatever ways people are able to and are passionate about helping, like I don't begrudge anyone that. Like we we need it all, frankly.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think that's totally true. And I guess I'm thinking more of like a third-party optimal resource allocation perspective but that's not realistic
1: no i mean for sure like on a completely like logical removed level like it is true that this is not the optimal allocation of resources but i mean there's also as you said the going to the moon analogy like there's tremendous benefit to just doing interesting one-off projects basic science you never know what is going to result
0: yeah yeah, that's cool. Um, and I sort of on this line throughout the book, you talk about uh, biodiversity and you know saving endangered species either through cloning or through other uh, techniques. And you know I'm going to ask a kind of interesting question, but like why do we care about biodiversity? Um, and some more context on that would be like from a utilitarian standpoint, one that I generally share, the suffering of an animal has nothing to do with how many other animals of that species exist and so there's no like meaningful difference between the death of like the last animal in a species and like the death of you know an animal like on a factory farm from a like hedonic experience standpoint and so yeah why why should we care about biodiversity if we're if we're mostly caring about suffering or well-being
1: well i guess i there are a couple different ways to answer that um and while i understand the utilitarian perspective i'm not sure that i share it entirely um i mean i think there is the problem is it's hard to articulate sort of an intangible value to having a natural world that is rich and for lack of a better word diverse Mm -hmm. in different kinds of creatures and species um and in something that you know, let's different kinds of organisms all continue to exist. I think the experience of the world would be a poorer one if we only had 10% of the life forms that we have now. Mm -hmm. And I understand that's not (laughs) easy to quantify, and I wish I could give a more articulate explanation of the power of having a, a rich world like that. But, I mean, if you want then a sort of more coldly, rational point of view i mean there are a lot of important services that biodiversity provides whether that is you know cleaning water and air preventing erosion um, things like sources of new antibiotics and materials and chemicals that have become really important to humans i mean there are ways in which biodiversity and ecosystems perform these quantifiable services and I, I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, but scientists have done studies where they can say, you know, a functioning wetland provides this dollar amount of service to like the homes that live around it. Hmm. So people can and have like done the cold hard math in yeah. that. So if like the sort of beauty of a rich natural world isn't convincing, I think there is a more analytical calculus you can make.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I certainly get my heartstrings pulled by, like, the thought of the last white rhino or walking across an empty, you know, savannah. And uh, it's very intuitively compelling, and I, I love nature, and it's where I like to spend most of my time. Um, I guess, like, along this train of thought, um, wild animal suffering is something that some people care about, but when you really think about, like, how many wild animals there are, the question of whether they are experiencing more suffering unbalanced than And pleasure is like a pretty important one, Um, and this leads you to some counterintuitive places, like saying that we should actually destroy natural environments because there will be fewer animals getting, you know, killed and eaten by other animals, and like that's really bad for them. Um, And this is part of why people don't like utilitarians, but uh, I think it's worth engaging with, and you know, putting aside um, the antibiotics and like the natural like environment um, replenishing that happens through biodiversity. Do you think there's any case to be made that like we shouldn't like repopulate, you know, the American plains with a bunch of wild animals that are in this brutal, you know, contest of nature?
1: I think there's a the case I would make is probably slightly different than what you are thinking of. So, mm-hmm. I and mean, the short answer is I think there is a case to be made for that. Um,
0: And and for context, in the book, you describe people who actually want to repopulate like American plains with, you know, a lot of different wild animals and like create new ecosystems that go into balance. So this would be different from like trying to then destroy natural environments that already exist, which is a much harder case to make. But like the question of like whether we should actually try and increase the amount of wild animals in the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I think if the argument is that we shouldn't do that because most wild animals suffer and by increasing the number of wild animals on the world we are thus increasing suffering like mm-hmm. I understand the logic of that argument but I don't personally buy it uh, you know I think you could make that argument that by extension that most humans suffer and therefore no one should have children and I'm sure people and have made that argument a- like the I, anti-natalist yes. position yes. that is yeah uh, um,
0: I don't hold that position myself no but. I
1: mean so I understand it. Um, You know, I think it also gets you to some disturbing places where, like, we shouldn't, we should just let everything go extinct because what better way to eliminate suffering than by no longer existing? Um, That aside, I think the, my bigger concern with those projects is that I would love to see, like, a thriving american west again with you know bison and all these creatures yeah. but unless we really seriously address the problems that led to their demise in the first place i think it's destined for failure mm. and i think probably also likely to lead to a lot of animal suffering so if we you know don't clean up the environment and don't give them place to roam i mean habitat fragmentation we've built all over what used to exist of their habitats you know, I think if we really want to, whether it's repopulating species that currently exist in places they've disappeared from, or bringing back, you know, the woolly mammoth or other completely extinct species, I think it's wrong to do that before we've addressed the reasons that they went yeah. extinct or disappeared in the first place. Yeah. And it's sort of doomed for failure. Yeah, probably so, a lot
0: more cost effective too to prevent the destruction of more environments than to create a whole new one.
1: Right. I mean, I would love to, if there's a way to return to that, I'm all for it. But I'm wary of bringing back all these animals to a world in which they might not be equipped to survive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's always Red Dead Redemption for uh, the Wild West uh, animal experience.
1: And I'm sure we'll have hologram woolly mammoths any day now. Oh, that's
0: like uh, the the illustrated man, the Ray Bradbury book. I think the first one is like, they go into a hollow room and go on safaris. And
1: exactly. That um, might be the only way to go on safari soon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny because yeah, all this stuff is super sad to think about. And I definitely have the kind of conservationist intuition pretty strongly. And I love being in parks and outside, but the suffering, the wild animal suffering argument is pretty compelling to me as well. So it's, I I don't have any strong beliefs about what we should do (laughs) about it. Um, But, you know, some of the interventions that I know people are working on are, like, convincing people to keep their cats indoors. Right. Because cats are just brutal murderers that go around (laughs) slaughtering, like, you know, it could be, like, a dozen animals a night, and for no particular reason. Um, I mean, they evolved to do that, but... Right. um, It's not really helping anything to just let them go around killing mice randomly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess my... This is just personal... Opinion, I know it will vary, but my personal view would be that our top priority in terms of animal welfare should mm-hmm. be preventing, attenuating, eliminating, minimizing the harms to animals that humans are involved in causing. Yeah,
0: yeah that's an obvious um, place to start, I think.
1: And so, you know, whether we're going to, like, I don't think go running onto the savannah and keeping lions from killing antelopes to live, you know is smart or helpful or something that we should get involved in. But there are lots of ways in which our species are harming animals, both wild and domesticated. And sort of that would be where I'd like to see us put our focus.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I guess like in that uh, vein, you discussed some ideas to like make animals that are being farmed, like less susceptible to pain. Um, and you said that like, well, you've, see the argument for this you get uncomfortable with the idea of like us then creating like even worse environments for for animals because they're not you know responding the same way um but i guess like i i had a different read where you know from the little i know about factory farming it, it doesn't seem like it can get much worse uh for some species and making them feel less pain like i'd rather they just not be farmed in the first place but if they are going to be farmed um if we can like artificially engineer how much pain that they, they can experience at all that strikes me as like a, a good or at least a less bad intervention
1: yeah i mean this is a really tricky one and that's you know one of the things i talk about in the book is how sometimes my logic and my emotion came into conflict and this mm-hmm. was a really vivid case of that because intellectually it completely makes sense to me but there was something that unsettled me about it um and you know i do think that all things being completely equal, held constant, like absolutely reducing or eliminating the pain that these animals feel is a good thing. I guess what unsettles me is thinking of how that would actually play out in, of course, the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, as you point out, there are a lot of problems with factory farming that go beyond animal welfare, whether that's environmental degradation, overuse of antibiotics, etc. And so I guess I'm just wary of anything that seems like it would expand the reach of factory farming or, like, lead to its proliferation. Um, And again, like, I don't know. It's hard. Like, I don't know if I could flip a switch and make this painlessness thing happen, you know, what I would do. But I don't know. I, I worry about the ripple effects. And, you know, as a side note, it's also ultimately really unhealthy and dangerous to feel no pain. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, people who actually have that genetic variation often die young, which is a separate issue, but it's a hard one. I mean, I don't know what we should do in that scenario.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting because these topics come up at um, effective altruism meetups quite a bit. Like, you know, would you eat happy cows if like, you know, the cows were living, given really good lives or in this case, like engineered to not feel pain? And it's kind of crazy that we're getting to a place where these are no longer thought experiments, potentially. Um, and that was like one of the things that really struck me reading the book is like how much of it just really felt like science fiction, um, in particular, the uh, cyborgs. Uh, so can you just describe like the few different ways that uh, cyborgs have been created so far?
1: Well, so I will, but I want to go back for one second. Yeah, so that's sure. okay Because you mentioned the happy cows, which made me remember something that I don't think I put in the book, but one of my sources took that even farther. And he said, you could imagine, in theory, creating sadomasochistic cows who actually (laughs) enjoy pain. And like, you know, whether we could technically do that is another question, but like as a thought experiment, like would that be ethical to create farm animals that sort of actively enjoy the role that they play in this massive machine? You know, that's... Maybe something for the next uh, effective altruism meetup to consider. I don't have an answer to that. The,
0: the good utilitarian, I think, would say that that would be a good thing. Uh, they're just the happy cows argument. Setting aside, like, engin- you know, uh, bioengineering um, interventions, it just seems unlikely to be the case that like they actually would experience those things. Of course, it's also just so hard to know with like the amount of uncertainty involved. Um, I mean, we have ways of inferring what animals want by like seeing how much discomfort they're willing to inflict upon themselves to get the thing that they're right. trying to do right. um so we know that like chickens like to perch for example and it's important for their welfare that we make that available um so yeah if if you were 100 percent certain i guess you would be in favor of it
1: <laughs> yeah i mean it's sort of it again it's hard to make the logical argument against it but i think emotions sometimes run a against that. Yeah. Um, I mean,
0: there was a the famous case in Germany where a guy posted on the internet that he wanted to be killed and yeah, eaten and he yeah. did it. And it's, I read it and I was like, Oh my God, this should not be allowed to happen. But you know, there's, you could make an argument about like, uh, inspiring other people who, you know, like suicide is a complicated case where you don't want to question somebody's autonomy or control it. But at the same time, many people who try to kill themselves regret it, um, afterwards. So you can say that, like, you don't know what you really want in the moment, in the long term. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. It just, you read the story and you get so grossed out by the thought of somebody like, you know, cutting their own penis off and serving it to somebody to eat. <laughs> and you're just like, I don't want that to be allowed to happen. And I think, uh, that person eventually did the, the eater of the, other guy went to prison for some amount of time after initially being let off the i don't know if you followed that case at all
1: uh, i didn't follow it i read briefly about like i know it's just come up in to, a few but... books
0: that i've read because it's just like such a crazy example of like i don't know what my moral intuitions tell me to do in this case
1: yeah some of these cases really i think challenge our ability to reason through those kinds of moral decisions i think yeah uh, but you asked about cyborgs before yes, yeah. oh, we got of off course. track. <laughs> Sorry, what was the question? Uh, about just that like box? what are the
0: different uh, techniques that we've used to create like cyborgs, and, and what is a cyborg for this uh, for this purpose?
1: Well, th- I mean that's an interesting question. Um, you know, different people have defined cyborgs different ways, and some people who already have certain sorts of electronic. Prosthetics, whether that's you know cochlear implants or you know brain electrodes, have referred themselves to cyborgs. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some that walk among us if you yeah. take that definition. I mean braces um, are. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I, I, I suppose they could be. Um, but so I guess the if it seems weird to just talk about quote unquote traditional cyborgs, but sort of traditional way of making cyborgs or sort of controllable animals, um, is using electrodes or electronics. So in this method, you implant some sort of electrode or stimulation device directly in the brain, and it sort of interfaces directly with nerve cells, um, issuing electric pulses and prompting neurons to either fire or not fire. And you can then, depending on which neurons and how you stimulate them, you can create animals that feel different sensations or move in certain ways. The sort of newer approach is something that's known as optogenetics. Um, And this is an approach that relies on genetic engineering and on compounds that are known as opsins, O-P-S-I-N-S. And opsins are naturally exist. They're made by different species of plants and fungi um, and things like that. And they allow these organisms to detect sunlight and to convert light into fuel. Mm. Um, And so scientists can take the genes for those opsins and engineer them into brain cells. And then the brain cells start churning out their own opsins, and they can thus detect and respond to light. So once you've done this, and you can do it selectively, so you can make it so that only certain types of cells or certain cells in certain circuits or parts of the brain respond to light you can shine different colored lights on the brain and it does the same thing as the electrodes it then sort of stimulates them or shuts them off and depending on how you do it you can create different effects
0: and so these the lights are actually shined like on the brain itself
1: yes so like the lights in these experiment tend to be implanted in the brain or on some headset with you know like a, a bit of the brain exposed oh wow so, yeah, not just like us a That would really look like air. a cyborg
0: if you had like yes. <laughs> a computer or something coming out of your head. Um,
1: Though I, I think, and I'm not up to date on this, but I think there is some research looking into whether there are less invasive ways of doing that. Mm. But I'd, I'd need to look up the details. Yeah,
0: yeah no, I mean, this is just like mind boggling <laughs> to, to read about. Um, and so how, how precise is a control? And you wrote the book a few years back. And do you have any idea of how things have improved since then?
1: Well, I don't, I haven't kept up like super closely. In terms of the control, I mean, you can create a lot of different effects. So there are different types of opsins that respond in different ways to different colored lights. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you put a certain gene stretch in, you can make a cell, you know, become more active when you shine orange light on and less active if you use blue light. And so by using different colored lights and you can also target different circuits very specifically so just engineering the motor cortex or a certain part of the motor cortex you can get fairly specific effects on brain cells Mm -hmm. Uh, i mean i think from there it gets trickier because the brain is so complex that there's not like a one-to-one mapping of like activate this one cluster of brain cells and this exact behavior will result every time. And I think that's in some senses where the science is improving is we're getting a better sense of how activating this network or shutting down this network, what the effects are. Mm. Um, But in terms of like effects, it's somewhat crude. Like you're not going to be able to do this and then, you know, make a mouse do a choreographed jig, yeah. Um, but one day, maybe. I mean, I, I think our, our bigger limitation right now is not our technology, but our knowledge of the brain.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So is this actually helping us, like, map, you know, how genes interact with parts of the brain?
1: Well, yeah. So one of the big uses of this is not to create remote-controlled rats, yeah. but it's really useful for basic science because one of the best ways to figure out what something does in the brain is
0: to turn it off off and then
1: turn it on and see what happens. And so that's, I think, what scientists have mostly been excited about. I mean, there are potential clinical applications as well. Um, Deep brain stimulation has become sort of a very promising treatment for a bunch of neurological conditions from, Mm -hmm. you know, Parkinson's depression. And and so far, I mean, we're not talking optogenetics, that's actual brain stimulators. Mm -hmm. But most scientists I think are excited about it because it's a whole new technique for learning about the brain.
0: Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Uh, I remember you opened the book with these rats that have been engineered to just have genes turned off at random. Mm -hmm. Um, and then scientists just see what happens. Yep. Um,
1: it's crude, but it's effective.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so this is like coming back to medical ethics and, and animal testing. Um, you know, most of the people I know who care about animal welfare focus on farming, factory farming, because that's where like 99 plus percent of animals that humans raise are kept. Um, so I've never actually given that much thought or read too much about like the effective altruism perspective on um, animal testing. But my understanding is that like testing on animals has been really crucial to developing modern uh, medicine and other you know, scientific uh, advancements that we rely on every day. But what kind of like ethical obligations do you think scientists who work in the space have?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, probably not surprising that I think animal research is absolutely necessary. But as you said, like, that does not mean that we're free to just do or that we should be free to just do whatever we want Mm -hmm. for whatever reason we want. So I think there are a couple of guiding principles, and I will also say that I think most scientists generally agree with this i I think there's sometimes a misconception that researchers just don't care about animal welfare at all and you know any means to an end and in my experience that is not true um but so i think conventional wisdom and ethics you know has a few precepts one is to make sure the use of animals is absolutely necessary like Mm -hmm. is there a different way to get this data is this you know, are you ready for animal testing or should you do more basic research first? Um, You know, do we really need to use animals in this way in this instance? Um, And I think there are lots of cases in which the answer is yes, but that's the first thing to make sure. Um, I think also to keep the number of animals as low as possible and not like as low as physically possible. So you also want statistically significant samples. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a balancing act, but you know, if you can get a convincing result with, You know, colony of 100 rats don't use 500. Um, And then also about how they're housed and treated when they're in labs. So, you know, we've learned a lot about how to improve their lives, even of lab animals. And a lot of that has to do with um, what's known as environmental enrichment. So for, you know, a long time, animals were housed just sort of like by themselves in single spare cages. Um, and scientists have learned a lot about how they do a lot better in enriched environments. So that's often with other members of their species, like another mm-hmm. rat, um, and cages with running wheels and with things to occupy their mind and sort of keep them stimulated. Yeah. Um, so things like that. And then, of course, you know, in some of these experiments do require animal euthanization. Uh, or euthanizing animals and so to do that you know there are humane and inhumane ways to do that but so to do that as humanely as possible to you know use things like anesthetics when possible and when the procedure allows it so sort of basic things like that i think Mm -hmm. are all really good starting principles
0: yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense and i don't know anybody or i don't know of knowing anybody who's like a anti-animal research absolutists because it seems like a pretty hard position to hold if you care about the suffering of like people as well and just like you know the discoveries that we can make and how they can help conscious creatures down the line
1: yeah i mean i, I think there are certainly cases in which it could be dialed back and i'm thinking more of like you know cosmetics yeah. and stuff yeah, that's like the most that um, one but you know i think to it's some level of it is necessary absolutely
0: yeah I mean, in doing the research for this book, um, did you come to any beliefs about what should really be off limits? Like what things we should not even, it's not even about how you do the research and like the ethics of how you treat the animals involved, but things we just shouldn't know. Like there's a moral hazard in knowing how to make smallpox and sharing that information.
1: (coughs) You know, I don't think I can think of any questions that should not even be asked. And I think of very few examples off the top of my head, at least, of experiments that should be off limits forever and always. Um, But I do think there are certain classes of experiments we need to be especially careful about, or that may not be ready for prime time. I mean, the most obvious example, um, and this has all happened since I wrote the book um, is uh, use of CRISPR to mm-hmm. genetically gene edit human babies, um, babies that will be carried determined delivered. and you know that's already happened. There was a big uh, outcry about it when it happened last fall. Um, And so the thing about this technology is it's incredibly promising and i think it's inevitable that it will save lives but i don't think it's close to being ready to be used on actual humans Um, it's not refined enough there's still a lot we don't know about its effects its downstream effects um it's still relatively inefficient and seems to generate mistakes and so there have been calls to you know institute some temporary moratorium five years whatever it is on this type of research Mm -hmm. um and i think that's wise i mean i think there are experiments that we're not ready to do yet um though i'd be reluctant to say we should never do them um maybe more relevant to the book uh another type of experiment that i think is could be potentially problematic is when you talk about um engineering the brains of animals to push them in a more human like direction uh so some of this has been happening already um and you know scientists have created like pigs with human livers and stuff like that but you could imagine you know what if you create a cow or a chimp with a human brain yeah um and i think that that is you know raises (laughs) a lot of questions um you know what level of awareness would this creature have you know would it be stranded between two species sort of neither not a full member of either one Mm -hmm. Um, you know I think that's something that we need to be really careful about I mean I'm reluctant to say we should never put a human gene that affects the brain in an animal period Mm -hmm. because I think there may be interesting experiments that can come from that Um, but that's another area to be really careful i think
0: yeah yeah and it raises questions of like what's the dividing line between we have some ways of saying like what's a different species than another but this really starts to bore that
1: right i mean species are sort of a bit blurry anyway but yeah i mean like what would the internal experience and life be like for a creature like that i mean there's no way to know but i think there's plenty of reason to be troubled
0: yeah yeah yeah, I mean, how uh, how disturbed did you get while doing this research, just like on a visceral level?
1: You know, not super disturbed. Um, I don't know how to quantify it exactly, but there are definitely some applications that are seemed a bit creepy or that made me a little unsettled. But, you know, sort of to echo a point I was making before, I think sometimes the coverage of some of this stuff is that, you know, mad scientist doesn't care you know just out to do it because he can he doesn't care about the potential effects and that certainly happens i mean i think a lot of people argue that in this CRISPR baby case you know i don't want to make allegations myself but people have argued that like maybe this particular scientist was more interested in promoting his career than in the welfare of these kids and so like it can certainly happen but it was heartening to see how deeply the scientists doing this work are thinking about these issues. I mean, they're not blind to them. And I think they know that it, you know, to not think about it jeopardizes the work. And so, you know, I guess there's plenty to worry about. And, you know, one of the more systemic problems is that regulation always tends to lag way behind the science. Mm -hmm. And I think that continues. I mean, I think I would like to see... More regulation and international ethical frameworks and guidelines, but many, many of the scientists themselves are really deeply engaged in these issues. Um, and so that is heartening, I think. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's definitely reassuring. Yeah. Um, are you under the impression that there's like international research that is completely off the grid and unregulated that's happening on animals and bioengineering?
1: I mean, it's hard to say uh, sort of by definition, you know, before the CRISPR babies, I would have been more quicker to say no, Mm -hmm. but I think what that case showed us is that there are ways to, and again, I think it's a little bit unclear, it's unclear how much the Chinese government knew, um, but it did show that it's possible for somebody to do something pretty radical Like mostly undetected. There were people who knew, but, you know, without public scrutiny. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Yeah, I've seen some allegations, and I don't have the source off the top of my head, that the Chinese government has been doing like, if not gene editing, but like some kind of eugenics programs for for a very long time. Um, And that could be, I mean, the United States did this in the progressive era, um, with like forced sterilization, or paying people to Sterilize them, but there could also be a positive, like incentivizing certain people to like reproduce, um, and I don't know. It, it would just not surprise me if there are certain c- countries or labs that were doing some pretty wild stuff that we just had no idea about.
1: Even in the U.S., I mean, there's sorts of there's research that goes on that's classified that we won't know about for decades. That's so true. you know, like I would think that the ethical norms here would be relatively strong, and they tend to be, but you know there's no way to know for sure what goes on. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean the Cold War Cold War era stuff with like the CIA um dosing people with psychedelics and other drugs under MKUltra MK is like pretty Yeah. radical uh, and information.
1: The US government and US scientists have done some unequivocally unethical experiments in the past I'm yeah. thinking less of bioengineering here though some of it but like human experimentation yeah. so like it's certainly possible like bad things happen for sure yeah um, but I do think those tend to be outliers
0: yeah so uh, so yeah what's on the horizon for you you're finishing this book and...
1: yeah it's hard to see past that um, yeah. right now finishing this and um, you know go back to freelancing I'm not sure what what topics I'll gravitate to. I'll probably write a bit more as a freelancer about architecture and buildings and mm. sort of some of the ideas that I came across that didn't make it into the book because there's a lot that didn't fit. Um, and I'd like to do another book at some point though. Definitely want to break after this one.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, you, you mentioned prisons and jails earlier. Um, what it, What is your take on that in the book?
1: Well, uh, like everything, I guess it's complicated. Um, so is there, there's this movement to design more humane prisons and jails, um, mostly not happening in the U S it's mostly in like Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of it started to happen here. Um, and you know, not everyone I talked to thought that that was the right idea. Um, you know, because our criminal justice system is so fundamentally unjust, they sort of said that, that, focusing on creating more humane prisons sort of lets us off the hook yeah um and i totally agree with well maybe agree is the wrong word i see that point um and i definitely think we need sweeping criminal justice reform i think we send too many people to jail we send too many black and brown men to jail um we need to you know cash bail reform and sentencing reform and prosecutorial reform and all of that stuff. But I also think that incarceration, even if we accomplish all that, incarceration isn't going away yeah. and that these goals are sort of complementary, that we should be sending way fewer people to jail, but we should also be treating them better while they're there. Yeah, And so I don't think those approaches conflict necessarily.
0: Yeah, this is it. So prison reform is something I've been working on or interested in for, for a few years now. And I remember, um, I, I consider myself a prison abolitionist at this point, And basically I think that prison doesn't help anybody. Um, and there are alternatives that work much better. It'll take a long time to get there from where we are in the United States. Um, and a system like the Scandinavian system is like a, a about as good as you can get with like a prisons, although they use solitary confinement as well. Um, actually at a greater rate than we do in some countries. Um, and so there are still huge problems there. But um, investing in new prisons and jails is a tricky proposition when we already have way too many. And I remember there was a, a movement in Ithaca to not allow a new jail. And it was you know from people mostly on the left and people who I would like otherwise very strongly agree with. And I looked into the details, and it was like they're currently paying I think this might have been private prisons or paying other jails to house people, and this would actually like lead to less spending overall on like incarceration and like less overcrowding and, and all these things. And I, it was actually a genuinely hard question of like what the right answer there is, because um, you could say like we want no new jails or no new prison spending, but um, what if that prison spending is on education or like therapy uh, for people inside or like facilities that are safer and healthier and more humane? Um, so any takeaway specifically from the book research on like what a humane jail would look like, if well, one is possible?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you could certainly argue with whether one is possible, you know, a, a blanket humane prison. But I do think it is possible to create more humane prisons. Um, and so beyond sort of meeting basic human needs, which jails and prisons don't always do, I mean... There was the, Definitely not in the, United the <laughs> prison uh, or the a detention center in Brooklyn that like lacked heat, you know, yeah, during I, I, of, I was
0: there. It was like terrible.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, like that. I mean, that's a starting point. Right. Like and air conditioning in the summer. I mean, I've heard stories about Rikers Island and how like horrible that can be in the summer. Medical care, stuff like that. I mean, sort of the bottom line is um, to treat. People who are incarcerated as people and not as their crimes. So, you know, what you can do inside prison walls is limited, but generally it involves giving them more freedom and autonomy and not treating them like they're in a zoo, not treating them like, you know, they're caged animals who are liable to be violent at any moment, but giving them choice and dignity and... You know autonomy to the degree in which that could possibly exist yeah um and again like this is i don't want to suggest that's even close to sufficient um but i don't think that it's I, i don't think that prisons and jails are going away and so i think that as long as we're going to be putting at least some people in them that they're also worth rethinking
0: yeah yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I'm working on an article on solitary confinement, and it's kind of the most extreme example of your environment defining your well-being. And, exactly, and, and, and that's why
1: I, um, I I have a bit on solitary confinement in there for that reason. Is, you know, if you want to see how the built environment can affect mental health, there's no better case study.
0: Yeah, it basically just destroys it. <laughs> yeah, correct. Um, wow. Well, Emily, uh, we're approaching time, and uh, I just want to give you a chance to plug anything that's coming up, presumably your book. Um, Where can people find you online?
1: Uh, Yeah, so uh, The Great Indoors. uh, I think that will be the title. It hasn't quite been finalized, but it it should be. um, Likely May of 2020. Um, They can find uh, more of my work at my website, which is emilyanthes, A-N-T-H-E-S uh, dot com. Uh, Also find me on Twitter at EmilyAnthus. Um, those are the main places I point them
0: to. I would just plug Frankenstein's Cat as well. Oh, That's sure. Yes. Super we'll buy interesting all read. of my books, please.
1: <laughs> Frankenstein's Cat, uh, available wherever books are sold. Um, ebook version, there's an audiobook version if you prefer that. So something for everyone.
0: Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me.
0: This has been The Most Interesting People I Know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to, asks people to do this music is by me podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.